Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to endeavor in this audio to discuss Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to call it, Don't Neglect So Great a Salvation, although that really is just a few verses. After that, we go back to the same topic of Jesus being superior to angels, and we'll talk about what the salvation involved and how great Jesus was compared to everybody else, which is sort of the theme of the book of Hebrews. It's also about not neglecting so great a salvation. That's the other theme is, hey, Jewish Christians, don't get weary and go back into Judaism. As I said earlier in the, chap- in the previous audio, that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Now, our context is this. Chapter 1 talked about how Jesus was superior to prophets and how he was superior to angels. He's superior to everything. Again, Jews like prophets and they liked angels and they were tempted to go back into the Jewish religion so they could talk about their prophets and their angels. But no, the author is saying Jesus is better than that. We start in verse 1 of Hebrews 2. We must, therefore, pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. What's the therefore? Therefore, the author is referring back to chapter 1. Remember, the main point of chapter 1 is that Jesus is vastly superior to any Old Testament prophet or any angels. And because of that, therefore, we must pay even more attention to what we've we've heard. In other words, since Jesus is superior, we need to listen to Jesus' word and Jesus' gospel, not drift away from it. We must, therefore, pay even more attention to what we've heard so that we will not drift away. As I said, the Hebrews were in danger of being pressured to conform to Judaism, but we tend to, and we tend to forget that the greatest danger to the early church was not Rome. The persecution, but was Jerusalem. The persecution against the church by Rome started after the fire in Rome in 64 A.D. But from A.D. 30, when Jesus died, all the way up to whenever this book was written, I don't know when it was written. Sometime it was written sometime before A.D. 70, before Jerusalem was destroyed. The pressure on the church was from the Jewish, the land beast of Revelation, the apostate Jewish religion, went after Jewish Christians. Now notice this drifting away. This does not refer to a sudden decisive apostasy. It's gradually, I can't stand it anymore, I quit. And just quit. Throw your hands up and quit. One after another, drifting away. Application time. How many times do you see that in America? American church, oh, I just can't handle it. It's tough. I just I just quit. How can you quit? How does the dog vomit and then lick it back up again? I don't know. Why would you go back to the world? Because things got tough. Of course it's going to be tough. Jesus never promised you a rose garden, but people will drift away nonetheless. Hebrews 2, chapter, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received just punishment... How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. All right, the first, the if there in verse 2, for if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and of course it was, in first class conditionals, the, the if clause is spoken as a matter of, is assumed to be true for the sake of argument, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's actually true. And this is actually a first-class conditional. Technically, that's true, but, you know, of course the message spoken through angels was legally binding. So we're going to say since the message spoken through angels was legally binding. The NIV translation translates it this way. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and I wish that all translations would use common sense and do that, but they don't for technical Greek reasons. Thank you, NIV. I have a lot of bad things to say about the NIV a lot of times, but this time I think they did a good job. And what 
the author is doing here is making an a fortiori argument, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. What he's saying is if you think the penalty for violating the Mosaic Law was bad, and it was, the Mosaic Law was very, very strict, as you know. Well, if you think that's bad, just wait till you see the penalty for ignoring the message of the Son. You know, we are, oh, little Jesus, make and mild. He loves us so much, he won't ever punish us. You want to bet? You want to bet? He's not going to punish. Oh, yes, he will. Well, anyway, the message spoken through angels, the message spoken through angels. Oh, by the way, this argument I just said, the penalty for violating the Old Testament covenant was bad. If that's so, the penalty for violating the new covenant is commands of Jesus is worse. This is the opinion of the commentator Reinecker on page 668 of his commentary, and I don't think that's controversial. This is what the author's getting at. Now, the message spoken through angels, what was that? That's the Mosaic Law. I'm going to read you those verses in a minute that show that the Mosaic Law was given with angels, which is an interesting thing. The message spoken through angels is the law of God on Mount Sinai, the law of Moses. Now, Adam Clark disagrees with that. He says that the message spoken through angels were miscellaneous messages sent by God to people through angels, such as Lot in Genesis 19. You remember the story when the angels came to see Lot and they were homosexually assaulted and the, and the angels gave Lot instructions on that, how they could get out of Sodom without getting killed. Nah, I can't believe Clark says that. That's not, it says legally binding. That's, that wasn't a legally binding message that those angels spoke to Lot. This is talking about the Mosaic law. Now let's look at the scriptures that say that the Old Testament law was given through angels. Acts 7.53. This is Stephen speaking to the his Jewish persecutors. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. Galatians 3.19. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions unto the seed to whom the promise was made until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Deuteronomy 33.2. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and appeared to them from Seir. Those are, Seir is just a mountain range near Sinai. Appeared to them from Seir. He showed them them from Mount Paran and came with 10,000 holy ones. Holy ones, of course, are angels. With lightning from his right hand for them. So somehow God appears with angels as he gives the law on Mount Sinai. Psalm 68:17. God's chariots are tens of thousands, thousands and thousands. The Lord is among them in the sanctuary as he was at Sinai. Okay, so angels came with the law. But now, recall, angels are inferior to the sun, as in chapter 1. So the sun is greater th than angels. So if the law was mediated by angels, and angels are inferior to the sun, that means the law is inferior to the sun. That means the punishment the law gives, as bad as they are, are inferior to the punishments the son might give and that means buddy you ain't going to escape if you neglect the salvation that comes through jesus we'll talk about what that neglect might entail in a minute but the point here is that angels and the law are inferior to the son the angels uh, represent the mosaic law which came and which punished every little tiny infraction and injustice and transgression of the law of god and so if that's so and jesus is superior to that law then you might want to think about before you leave the faith. The law was harsh, stern, unbending, and unmerciful, as my friend Steve Ackerson says. And I say, the Jews are going to understand that. They're, they're Jews. They know about the Mosaic law. Notice in verse 3, Paul, excuse me, the author of the book of Hebrews says, how shall we escape? He's talking about we Christians as opposed to the Jews who received the law. How shall we Christians escape? The New Testament Christians had many more advantages than those under the Old Testament law which makes New Testament Christians neglect of the words of Jesus more damnable. 
more damnable than Old Testament believers who neglected the words of Moses. He who sins against a greater light sins greater. And that's why the author says, but we, or how will we escape a fortiori argument? If this is bad, how much more is this going to be bad? Now, what does it mean by escape? How shall we escape? Well, here's two options. How shall we escape hell if we neglect Jesus? The problem with that is it sounds like people could lose their salvation because the author is obviously writing to Christians who are in danger of drifting away from the faith. That's really hard for a lot of people to, to believe that, including me, because I don't believe Christians can lose their salvation, so I don't think that's what he's talking about. We'll, we'll talk about the great losing your salvation controversy when we get to that notorious passage in Hebrews 6, one of my favorite verses, because everybody gets bugged by this verse for decades I was, not anymore, but, but anyway, we'll talk about that when we get to Hebrews 6. Well, if it's not hell, what is it? Earthly punishments is what I say, and the context favors this. Just as the Mosaic law punished earthly transgressions, so will Jesus. So in other words, he's saying, look, the Mosaic law punishes every transgression and disobedience with a just punishment. Well, how shall we escape just punishments for what we do? How shall we escape the great salvation that comes from Jesus and the holiness and righteousness which comes from Jesus? If we neglect that salvation, how shall we escape the punishments that are going to come from that neglect? Now, in verse 4... We read this, it was it was first spoken by the Lord. What's the it? It's the message of the gospel. Verse 3, it says, how, shall, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, that means the message of the great salvation. Salvation offered by Jesus, that's the immediate reference of the pronoun it. Verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, the great salvation, was first spoken by the Lord. He was the one that gave us his great salvation. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now, this little innocuous phrase engenders a good deal of thought and discussion about who is the author of the book of Hebrews. There's two groups here. There's the confirmors and the confirmees. Those who confirm the word of salvation to those who have it confirmed to them. All right, well, let's first of all show something non-controversial. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the author was not one of the original twelve. Because the verse says, or refers to, those who heard him. Now, that could be those who heard him personally face-to-face, like Peter. It could refer to Paul, who heard Jesus in a vision. But whoever it was, the original twelve, or to Paul, no. Now, those who heard him would include at least the original Twelve apostles, and so those were the confirmors. The confirmees were the author and his friends. So the original twelve apostles confirmed to the author, which means that the author is not one of the original twelve apostles. That's non-controversial. Now the other issue that we need to look at concerning this phrase is: Is Paul the author of the book of Hebrews or not? Well, it depends on what "heard" means. First of all, let's assume that heard just means heard Jesus face to face. Not in a vision now, but just heard Jesus in human interactions on the earth. That would be the apostles. And so the apostles would be the confirming party and the confirmees would be us, which could include Paul because he was not one of the original apostles. So so Paul could be the author of the book of Hebrews. Not necessarily, but possibly. On the other hand, if you take heard as having heard Jesus in face-to-face personal interaction, or having heard Jesus in a vision, well, that means that the confirming people 
could include Paul because he had heard Jesus in a vision. And if so, then that means that the confirmees, the ones to whom the gospel was confirmed, would not include Paul because Paul is a confirmor, not a confirmee, because Paul heard Jesus in a vision. Well, those are iffy arguments either way, and I don't think I'd make a decision based on that, but that's what people talk about when they discuss that thorny issue of who wrote the book of Hebrews. Moving on to the next verse, Hebrews 2, verse 4, we read this. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Notice two persons of the Trinity are mentioned in this verse. God testified by signs and wonders and the Holy Spirit distributed gifts according to his will. So those, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the first and third persons are mentioned in connection with the message of the same of the message of salvation. The Son is associated with the message of salvation in the previous verse, in verse 3. He says, It, the message of salvation, was first spoken by the Lord. That's Jesus the Son. So we got the Lord announcing the message of salvation in the previous verse, verse 3. Then we've got God testifying to the message of salvation by signs and wonders in verse 4. And we've got the Holy Spirit distributing distributing gifts in order to testify to the message of the gospel, also in verse 4. So there's God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And notice this is something, this is one of my favorite verses actually, because you hear people all the time say, see there, God testified, God confirmed the apostles with miracles, and therefore he did that for apostles back then, but not for today. You know, it was the old cessationist thing. God never, t- and, and therefore only apostles can do miracles. Well, that's silly because the gift of miracles was one of the distributions of the gifts of the Spirit in Corinthians chapter chapter 12 and 14. What a gift of miracles? I wasn't just talking about apostles doing miracles. It's anybody that had the gift of miracles would do miracles. This verse shows that the thing which is confirmed or testified to by signs and wonders is the it, the message of salvation. You go back to verse 3, it says it, not the apostles, it. And the it, as I just previously said, it was first spoken. That's the message of salvation. Verse 3, how should, will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken for the Lord. Salvation was spoken by the Lord. It was spoken by the Lord. At the same time, God also testified. Hebrews 2.4 doesn't have testified to it. In my Holman Christian Study Bible translation, however, the NIV has the it explicitly in there. God also testified to it. Not the apostles, but to it. And, of course, what does it refer to? Go back to last part of verse 3. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. What was confirmed to us by those who heard him? The gospel message of salvation, as chapter 3 clearly says. Let me read that again to you. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord. And then verse 4, NIV. God also testified to it. Means the gospel, the message of salvation, not the apostles. So don't let some cessationists come and say, well, you got to be, you got to be able to do miracles, and Hebrews 2.4 proves it. No, it does not. Hebrews 2.5, for he is not subjected to angels the world to come that we're talking about. Now, has not subjected is in the past tense. He has not subjected in the past tense the world to come. Now, I used to just reconcile the problem with tenses there and say, well, in the past, in eternity, or not in the past really, but in eternity where God is not subject to time, he 
at that time has not, which is in the course in the past to us, I guess, if you want, before the world was created. Before the world was created, he has not subjected in his eternal decree to angels the world to come in the future. I don't have any problem with that. But it is a little bit strange that the verb is in the past tense. Probably an easy way to explain it in the way I just did is to understand what the world to come is, what it refers to. Now, the way we read it, if we're English speakers, we might want to say this is what he should have said, for he will not subject to angels the world to come. Because we think of the world to come as the world at the end of time. But that's not the way the Jews heard it. The world to come is a phrase used by the rabbis to refer to the age of the Messiah, as my friend Steve Ackerson says. Now, when the author of the Hebrews was writing his book, that age had already come because Jesus had already come. So the world to come was there now. So he, when he says he has not subjected to angels the world to come, he's referring to the past at the beginning of that world to come, at the beginning of the Messianic age, at the beginning of the inter-advent period when Jesus came to be crucified and resurrection. At that time, he is not subjected to angels, the Messianic age. Let's look at another scripture that kind of emphasizes this Hebrew way of looking at these last days or world to come phrases. Hebrews 1-2, in these last days, he has spoken, past tense, to us by his son, God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. He has spoken when in the last days. Well, that sounds like the future, right? At the end of the world. No, it has spoken in the past when Jesus came and revealed himself to mankind. Now, to show you that I'm not just making this up, here's some quotes from John Gill. This, this phrase here, he is not subjected to angels of the world to come. This is not the future state of eternal glory and happiness in heaven as opposed to this world and the present state of things. It doesn't refer to the future. Here's John Gill again. It is not of this future world the apostle is speaking. He is speaking of something now. Here's what Adam Clark says. That olam haba, if I said that Hebrew correctly, the world to come meant the days of the Messiah among the Jews is most evident. It's most evidently talking about the Messianic age. Now, of course, the Messianic age of the Jews is different than the Messianic age to Christians. We believe the Messianic age is after Jesus came because he's the Messiah. The Jews didn't believe that, but they did believe that the world to come was the Messianic age. Now, when that Messianic age started, of course, there's disagreement between the Jews and the Christians. Here's what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say. The world to come is the new dispensation brought in by Christ, beginning in grace here. All right, so it's the church age. So he is not subjected to angels, uh, the world in, during the church age. That's not what we're talking about. He's not subjected this Messianic world, this Messianic age to angels. Who is he subjected this current age to this messianic age to jesus not angels again theme of the book of hebrews the jews loved angels they're tempted to go back into angel worship and and the author saying no 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 jesus is better than angels he subjected the whole world to himself when he came the first time he subjected the church you need to stay in the church so you can be subject to the superior jesus who is superior the superior son who is much superior to angels now we'll say that adam clark says that there are some people who say that the world to come means the end of the world. Not me. I don't believe that for a minute. We go now to verses 6, 7, and 8, Hebrews 2. But one is somewhere testified. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, as it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. 
The author starts out in verse 6 somewhat strangely, but one has somewhere testified. Why doesn't he give us a direct quote? Well, here's some options as to why. Steve Atkinson says the author could remember where the quotation came from. And personally, I think that's what the answer is. He's just writing off the top of his head. John Gill says this. The author did know where the quotation came from, but just didn't bother to mention it because everybody knew. His readers were good Jews who were familiar with the scriptures, so there wasn't any point in mentioning the citation. Here's his quote, Gill's quote, Because the apostle is writing to Jews who were conversant with the scriptures, and knew full well who said the words and where they were, and it is usual with the Jews to cite passages in this manner. Okay, here's the opinion of Adam Clark. It was common thus to express the testimony of any of the inspired writers. It's common. Adam Clark also, also says the mode of quotation therefore implies not ignorance, but reverence. He's not ignorant of the scripture, Clark says, but he's reverent toward the scripture. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say this is the usual way of quoting Scripture to readers familiar with it. So it apparently there's a lot of commentaries that disagree with Steve Ackerson that the author just couldn't remember where the quotation came from. I don't know. I don't, it doesn't really matter to me. Here's an example of uh, the author of Hebrews again doing that in Hebrews 4.4. 4. For somewhere, he has spoken about the seventh day in this way, somewhere, wherever that is, well, if the author didn't know, we know. Psalm 8, 4 through 6. It is kind of hard to believe that the author didn't know Psalm 8, 4 through 6. I mean, but let's read that in Psalms. What is man that you remember him, the son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Now, this psalm is referring either to mankind when he says, what is man, mankind, the son of man, mankind the son of man by the way is hebrew parallelism parallelism it's just a repetition of man the way the hebrews always did their stuff so what is mankind what is the human being that you remember him you made him little less than god you created him with honor and glory you made him lord over the works of your hands he was supposed to take the world and take dominion over it and pasture the sheep and plant the crops and so forth you put everything under his feet the whole world was man's some say it's not mankind in general, what is Adam in particular? What is Adam that you remember him? The son of man, the son of, well, you wouldn't say the son of Adam. You'd say Adam means man, actually. So what is Adam that you remember him? You look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory. Not. It doesn't matter, whatever it is. The point is that the, the author of Psalms is referring to, to mankind, but the author of Hebrews takes this quote and refers it to Jesus so man refers to Jesus. What is man? Jesus, that you remember him, or the son of man. Ooh, that's Jesus again, Hebrew repetition. But now the author of Hebrews, I'm sure, had this idea in his head when he called Jesus the son of man. That's a messianic title. It's 70-something times in the New Testament, all but twice. Jesus used it of himself. He got it out of Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where the Son of Man went up to the throne, the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and inherited a kingdom, a dominion that would last forever and ever, messianic to the core. So again, the author of the book of Hebrews is starting to talk about the Messiah, the Son of Man, Jesus. And he follows that same pattern. Take the Old Testament, and when it refers to David or refers to human beings, let's refer it to the Messiah instead. What is man that you remember him, or the Son of Man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels. Oh, here's a problem. How does Jesus made lower than the angels? Jesus is higher than the angels. Not in his incarnate state, he wasn't. So he's talking about when he was incarnated. And he was lower than the angels for a short time, 30-something years. So, and, what, and I think what his point is, is that um, 
He doesn't mean to be derogating from his glory just because he was made lower than angels for a short time. Now, some translations translate that you made him a little lower than the angels, and in which case you would say, well, I don't know how, how you'd say that, because um, Jesus was never made lower than the angels. Unless you refer to his incarnate state, you could say he was just a little lower than the angels in his incarnate state because he was the perfect man. I guess you could say that. But I think it's easier just to take the Holman Christian Authority Bible translation and say you made him lower than the angels for a short time. He was incarnate for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor when he resurrected. You subjected everything to his feet. Now, there's another scripture that says that, 1 Peter 3.22. Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Notice the past tense. He has gone into heaven. Jesus is ruling now. The powers are subject to him now. The angels of the authorities, the demon, not the demons in heaven, but the angels in heaven. Everybody is subject to Jesus now. Now, classic dispensationalists say, well, no, he does not take the throne of God, the throne of David, as it's called, until the millennium does he do that. No, 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 folks. This verse shows right here. It's, he has gone into heaven and it's already happened. I think the progressive dispensationalists have dispensed themselves of that myth. Jesus is on his throne now. He is seated at the right hand of God now. And thank God he is. Uh, we'd be in a world of trouble. Now, when it says subjected, when did that happen? It's past tense again. Well, I would say at the resurrection when he sat down at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's when he's subjected everything to himself. So it's past tense to us when he was resurrected in the past. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. And as it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. Now, that can be a little confusing because it says in the first part of the verse, everything is subject to him, but in the second part of the verse, but not everything is subject to him. Oh, well, of course, the author's not going to make a contradiction right there in one sentence. When he says in the left part of the sentence, he left nothing that is not subject to him, that double negative means everything is subject to him. Well, that was talking about act of potentially. He rose and says, okay, now I have the authority, but now it hasn't been carried out in, on earth yet. We're in the process of mopping up as more and more people in the world come to know Jesus and the whole world will be subject to him. Notice that Jesus is to have everything subject to him. That's what Adam and Eve had too. They had everything subject to them and they screwed it up. And so now the second man needs to have everything subject to him. The first Adam has nothing <laughs> subject to him now except that which he has to conquer by hard work and toil because of the dominion mandate. But now Jesus is going to subject everything to himself at the end. Hebrews 2.9, But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering in death. What's the but, therefore, at the beginning of the verse? In contrast to the last phrase of verse 8, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory, but we do see Jesus. Well, let me do that again. The last part of the last phrase of verse 8 says, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. Now, verse 9, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory. So we don't see complete subjection of the world of Christ, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory. But we see Jesus now. How do we see Jesus now before he, his final return? It's not with our physical eyes, but it's with the eyes of the mind, as John Gill says. He was made lower than the angels for a short time. That, of course, is during the incarnation, 30 years or so. 
so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. He was made lower. That means he was incarnate. He was put down on here on this earth so that he might taste death for everyone. That was the purpose of God. He had a mission to give Jesus, which is to die for us. The substitutionary atonement, as in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And, of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus became a sinner. It means that he carried the sin on his shoulders to take it away from us. Now, notice the author of Hebrews says he might taste death. Now, you know, you taste, you think of somebody just kind of gingerly putting their tongue on something to see what it tastes like, just taking a little bit to see how it is. And that's not what the word means. It means he he fully experienced death. He didn't just taste it to get a little feel for it. He fully experienced death. I mean, he was nailed up on a cross and crucified in horrible pain. Steve Ackerson says... In reference to the fact in verse 9 that Jesus is crowned with glory, he says, unlike the rest of mankind, Jesus did remain a little lower than the angels. (laughs) So mankind's still down here, lower than the angels, but by golly, Jesus is above the angels now. Notice that the author says that Jesus is crowned with glory after he talks about death. This is a common theme in the Bible, death, the shame of death and the glory of resurrection. Shame and glory. Death and resurrection, they go together. You can't have glory without death. That's the way it works. You've got to die somehow. you got to suffer somehow before, so you can be resurrected from it. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2.10. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Endure all things for the elect. Suffer for the body of Christ, your fellow brothers and sisters. Notice the word because. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. His suffering and death brought about glory. If he hadn't have died, the glory wouldn't have been there. There's the, the causal agent there, but the because show, shows the, call, the causal agency runs between the suffering and death to the effect, which is glory. You don't have death, you don't have glory. That's the way it is in the spiritual world and our, our natural world, too. Well, speaking of glory, we go to verse 10. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, all things exist for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. Many sons, that means the sons of God, that means Christians. The source of their salvation is Jesus. He was made mature, complete through sufferings. Well, first of all, how can Jesus be made perfect? He can't be morally perfect. He's already He can't be made morally perfect. He already is morally perfect from the... Day one of his life. Well, it means he finished his mission. He finished his ministry. When he got up on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's over. I'm finished doing what I did to deliver the sons of salvation from their sins. Now, in verse 10, the author says, for in bringing many sons to God, he's referring to verse 9. He's giving a reason why the grace of God required that Jesus should taste death. Hebrews 2, 9 says, by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. He suffered death. Verse 10, for in bringing many sons to get glory, it was entirely appropriate that God would let him die and suffer. So verse 10 is following on verse 9, which is talking about how Jesus had to die. Now, why did the author in verse 10 say it was entirely appropriate that God should be made perfect through sufferings? In other words, should die. Why is it entirely appropriate that 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 God should have Jesus suffer and die. Well, the Jews, as of course is well known, they were looking for a political Messiah, a glorious Messiah, a Messiah riding on a white horse, all covered in gold, 
a military leader, and instead what they got was a, an alleged criminal dying on the cross. And the author, again, remember his goal is to stop Jewish Christians from leaving the Christian faith. He says, look, it was appropriate that God did that, that he sent a suffering Messiah rather than a military Messiah. Now, he has a little side comment here, a little parenthetical remark. All things exist for him and through him. All things exist for God and through God. Let's take that word for. This means that the goal of all created things is to give God pleasure. All things are created for him. All things exist for him. He made this world for his pleasure. He's God and he's got the right to do that. We don't get jealous of that. He has every right. This idea is in other scriptures too. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things are directed toward him. To him. To him be the glory forever. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God the Father. All things are from him and we exist. Why? We exist for him. That's why he made us. To give him pleasure. And that's why he does give us. We do give him pleasure when we exhibit the characteristics of his son through the aid of the Holy Spirit. Revelation 4.11 Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and because of your will they exist and were created. Because you wanted it. Will means want, right? Because of God's wants, his desires, everything exists. So everything is for God. Same thing is said of Christ, not just God the Father. Colossians 1.16 For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything, everything in the world is for Jesus. Everything that's created that hasn't been corrupted by sin, of course. Now, Paul mentions that he is bringing, not Paul, excuse me, the author of Hebrews says that he is bringing many sons to salvation. The bringing there, the Greek is actually in the past tense, so it would read something like, for having brought many sons to glory. When did that happen? Well, when God elected them from the foundation of the world, I suppose. Or it could refer to the crucifixion and the resurrection, which was also in the past. But it, however, whatever it refers to, God brought many sons to glory. What does it mean, many? You know, we often think that there are not, a lot, not a lot of people get saved. Straight is the gate and the way is narrow. And there's going to be a great apostasy before the great tribulation and then the world and hardly anybody's going to believe and we just got to hunker down. Well, how do you explain this verse right here? In bringing many sons to glory. That doesn't say just a few. Narrow is the gate and straight is the way. How about Matthew 20:28? 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. How do you reconcile those two statements? Well, when Jesus said the way is the narrow, he was referring to Pharisees who obviously were not willing to walk the way of Jesus. And so he's telling them, you guys are going to get shut out of the kingdom. You think that you who think you're white walking in on the wide path. I've already mentioned why it's appropriate that God would let his son die, that the source of our the son's salvation, Jesus, should be made perfect through sufferings. Why is that appropriate? It's appropriate because in God's economy, there was no other way for sons to be brought to glory. There had to be a substitutionary atonement. Somebody had to die for our sins. There's no other way for sinners to make their way to a holy God. Jesus' death was not a tragic accident, but it was God's plan. It was appropriate that God allowed Jesus to die. Now, why did the author say it was appropriate? I've already said this. I think James and Fawcett Brown said that this is probably to answer objections that a Messiah could not be a suffering Messiah. 
And that's why it was appropriate. Now, in verse 10, the sons that are brought to glory, the source of their salvation is mentioned. Other tra- who's, of course, Jesus. Other translations, the ESV says the founder of their salvation. The KGV says the captain of their salvation. The NIV says the author of their salvation. Source is kind of blasé. That's Holman Christian Study Bible. The word apparently is difficult to translate. It has the idea of a trailblazer, according to a gentleman named Marchant A. King in Moody Monthly, February of 1982. I don't know who this guy is, this brother is, but trailblazer, that's who Jesus is, the source of our salvation. And he's made perfect through sufferings. Perfect is from the verb teleo, to bring to an end, bring to a goal or accomplishment. Here's some options as to how Jesus was made perfect. He was restored to his pre-incarnate glory when, after he died and went to heaven and resurrected. He was made perfect in that he was done with the work God had called him to do. That's what I just mentioned. This is what Alford, the famous commentator, Alford said, and I think Alford says, and I think that's true. He reached the goal of his mission, the purification of sins. James Vossett Brown says this, quote, I prefer with Calvin, Calvin understanding to make perfect as a completed sacrifice, legal and official, not moral perfection is meant, obviously not. Jesus can't be made morally perfect. He already is. But he can finish his legal and official duties as a suffering sacrifice. Now, if Jesus was made perfect by his sufferings, and Jesus is our example, what application is that to us? Folks, as C.S. Lewis famously said, pain is God's megaphone to get us to listen. And unfortunately, we every Christian will suffer at some time in their life, some worse than others. I don't understand it. It's a deep subject. I hate it. I mean, I literally hate suffering. Why would anybody like to suffer? But Jesus didn't like it either. He said, if it's your will, take it away from me. He didn't want to die on the cross, but he did it. He went through it because he had to be made perfect. He had to finish his ministry. I mentioned that everything was made for God. In this verse also, it says everything was made through God. Uh, Not through, I'm sorry, everything, everything was made. Yes, everything is made for God, but also through God. All things exist for him and through him. So that means that everything was made for God, as I've already said. Everything was made through God. That means he's the agent of the creation of everything. When he says everything is made for him, that means God made everything for his own pleasure, not for ours. He didn't make the the world so we could be happy in it. Of course, we are happy when we're in God. There's a lot of people out there trying to use the world to make themselves happy. We go to verses 11 and 12 in Hebrews 2. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. The one who sanctifies, of course, is Jesus. Sanctified means to make holy, which means to be consecrated or dedicated to God and separate from the world. Very standard definition, easy definition. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, for the one who makes holy and those who are made holy, all have one father. And who are the ones made holy? That's, of course, Christians. This is, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, the ones who are sanctified. Those are brothers, and Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because he sanctifies us, and, we're, and we receive the sanctification. And then in verse 12, the author says, let me go back to verse 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, in verse 12, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. That is a quotation from Psalm 22:22, which says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will praise you in the congregation, a direct quote. And Psalm 22, that's David speaking, the author of Hebrews instead of David speaking, has it as the Messiah speaking. So I, Jesus, the Messiah, will proclaim your name, will proclaim God's name to my brothers, the brothers being the sanctified ones, the ones that Jesus is not ashamed to call brothers. 
So Jesus is going to proclaim God's name to the brothers. I guess that's another fancy way of saying Jesus is going to reveal God to us, to Christians. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Now that's a little strange. How is Jesus going to sing hymns to God in the congregation of the believers? John Gill has an interesting solution to that question. He said Jesus did that, sang, sang hymns to the brothers in the congregation, when he was with the apostles at the institution of the Lord's Supper, because they sang hymns there, and the brothers were congregated around the table, and he sang hymns to them. Matthew 26:30 says, After singing psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I had a little off-the-wall idea. I wonder if that could mean Jesus is singing praise to God in the congregation of the brothers in, in, con, in terms of the church. He's singing in church with us as we sing to the Father. I don't know, that might be a little far-fetched, but it sort of sounds like that. But it's a strange phrase. Once again, the author of Hebrews uses that method of procedure. He takes a song, an Old Testament scripture that obviously refers to a human being like David, and he refers it instead to the Messiah, to Jesus. Now in verse 11, it says, For the one who sanctifies, we've talked about sanctification, we read in Hebrews 10:10 10, 10, this by this will of God we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we often talk about Jesus Christ dying on the cross to justify us, but here in this verse he sanctifies us too. So justification sanctification happens on the cross. And of course there's that verse I don't have it in front of me that says that sanctification without which no one will see God, which means you've got to get justified and sanctified. You got to believe in Jesus and the sanctification starts right then. We go to verse 13. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Again, what he's doing is quoting more scripture. Again, here's another scripture. He's given another quotation to prove Christians are Jesus' brothers. I wonder why Jesus brought up this idea of Christians being brothers all of a sudden in verse 11. Here's my speculation. Jesus went through terrible suffering to bring sons to glory. Well, since he did all that to bring sons to glory, he values them very much, very much and so he calls them brothers. All right, going back to verse 13. Again, I will trust in him, and again, here I am with the children God gave me. He's quoting scriptures again. Unfortunately, that first phrase, again, I will trust in him, is not clear where the author of Hebrews is quoting from, as Adam Clark says. Here are some options. Isaiah 8:17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. That doesn't sound like a quotation at all, does it? I will trust in him, and then Isaiah 8:17 says, I will wait for him. I don't think so, but... The Septuagint translation has a phrase that sounds like Hebrews. Gill says that, Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that. I didn't, I didn't go pull up the Septuagint translation like I should have, but I'll just assume that Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown are correct, that it has the phrase in there, I will wait for him. Another option is Psalm 18.2. This is from the KGV. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. Again, I will trust in him, says Hebrew. Right, that's close enough. John Gill and Adam Clark leaned to Psalm 18.2 is what's being quoted here. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. That's easy to know where that came from. That's Isaiah 8.18. Isaiah says this, Here I am with the children the Lord has given me. Straight out quotation. Isaiah continues, The Lord has given me these children to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Now, referring to Isaiah 8.18, what are those signs and wonders? Well, the apostles of Jesus did many signs and wonders, or the believers in Jesus themselves were many signs and wonders. I'm with the children of God. Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders. That means they are signs and wonders themselves, or they are creating signs and wonders by doing miracles. Once again, the children of the Jews and 
Isaiah 8.18, they're changed to be, in the Hebrew quotation, it's Jesus, not it's referring to Jesus. Here I am with the children God gave me. It's not the children of the Jews. Now it's the children of Jesus. Excuse me, the children of God, who are, of course, because of that, brothers with Jesus. So Jesus is saying, here I am. I'm, I've got some children. God gave me those children. They're his children, and they're my brothers. That's it, folks, for Hebrews 8, 1 through th- 2 through Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 13. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18, we'll talk about how Jesus helps his brothers that were brought to glory through his suffering. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.